That was the aha moment from the book, Growth IQ. That growth for me is a thinking game, number one. Number two, the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram, you're welcome to another fun, fun episode of Flip My Fun Podcast. I'm here with someone I really, really, I feel this person inspires me. I think highly of them, especially because of all the things that they have done in the past, as well as what they are evangelizing in, in the present. So there's a lot that we're going into. Tiffany Boa, she is the customer and growth innovation evangelist at Salesforce, author of the book, Growth IQ. So we're going to jump into that in a little bit. She also hosts a podcast, What's Next? And, and one thing that I love about Tiffany is the fact that she's very transparent. We have all kinds of talks around funnels, and we'll, we'll definitely jump into some of that. This, you're going to get a real authentic view of everything that uh, she thinks about marketing, sales, and customer success. So Tiffany, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. One of my favorite conversations, so I can't wait. All right. Well, let's start with a fun fact about yourself. Well, many people know that I was uh, born and raised in Hawaii, but they may not know that I had a little guest spot on the original Hawaii Five O when I was like eight. Whoa. Whoa. There's, there's no footage to be found, I don't think. I'd have to go find that episode. But anyway, I was, I, maybe I was nine, but I was a little kid. Yeah. Yeah, you were on the show. This is yeah, I was playing tennis. I was playing tennis. So. Wow. You, there must be some sort of record, either written or video of some sort. We got to find it. Got to find it. Yeah. So if anybody's listening and if they have, and if you want to really, maybe really find some time with Tiffany and, and, and spend, if you ever want to do that, that would be one way to, to get hold of her. Excellent. All right. So you wrote a book, Growth IQ. Why did you write it? And what was what is the epiphany for you in that whole idea around Growth IQ? Yeah, you know, as no surprise, I call myself a recovering seller. So in many ways, I, I sell vicariously still. I haven't carried a quota in a really long time. But prior to joining Salesforce, I was a research fellow at Gartner for a decade. Uh, and prior to that, I was a practicing sales marketer and customer service leader. But during my advising time, one of the questions I got almost daily was, we're trying to grow. We're trying to improve sales at the top of the funnel, you know, sort of let's just talk or talk organic growth. Uh, and what are the things we could be doing? And I started consistently hearing this pattern that they would pick one of three levers to pull. One, hire more salespeople. Two, spend more marketing dollars. Three, cut costs. And I knew that there had to be a better way. And once I started to hear that over and over again, especially with leaders of very large companies, was they were trying to make course corrections in quarter. Like mm. we're in month one or month two of the quarter, we know it's going to be a little soft. Like what are the things we can do to shore that back up and bring back revenue uh, on the right side from a quota attainment standpoint? And I knew that I couldn't scale the conversations that I was having. And the best way to do that would be a book. And so I started really paying attention to the answers I was giving and what people were trying and what companies that were high performing were doing differently. And 
And I took the opportunity between uh, the first year of me, me transitioning into the role at Salesforce to really dig into that story. Like, what is the story? And, and Growth IQ was the culmination of that and, and really the product of that effort. I love that. And I've seen so many posts around different ideas. And I think one of the recent one I saw, Tiffany, was this, I wouldn't call it infographic. I think it was a whiteboard where somebody was just drawing all the 10 different ideas from the book. I thought that was really, really fascinating. Yeah, you know, what's great about it, it's, it's interesting. I get sort of two pieces of feedback. You know, one piece of feedback is there was nothing new in the book. And then in reality, I feel like I did my job. Because what I was trying to do was to modernize a lot of the strategies around growth from the, from the 50s. I mean, you talk about the Ansoff matrix, um, really thinking about the funnel and how to accelerate that. I mean, there's nothing new there. So, you know, it would have it, it behooved me to say, let me just take everything that people have been doing and modernize it using all the tools at our disposal to now, today now, right? Social, mobile, access to ubiquitous access to, to the internet. Uh, multiple selling channels, the Amazons of the world. I mean, everything is different. And so how do those strategies work today? So that's that's good that I did that. But on the positive side of it, what the people who really got something out of it realized that it wasn't about the 10 paths I chose. Mm. It was about the combination and sequence in which you execute those paths. And that was the aha moment from the book Growth IQ. That growth for me is a thinking game, number one. Number two, the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. And so that combination and sequence, that was the power of pulling multiple levers and, uh, and pursuing multiple paths in combination, but more importantly, in the right order. And so if you just looked at the paths themselves, you'd be disappointed that there was nothing new there. Right. But if you started to see the subtlety behind High performers were doing that combination and sequence in really unique ways, which were differentiating them from their competition. I love that. Now, are there examples of companies that you feel today are executing that kind of playbook really, really well? And of course, I feel Salesforce is, in, in my view, my history of Salesforce and everything I've seen when I was there. And now even outside, it looks like, oh my goodness, this is a playbook, like a movie playing in real time. But are there other companies that you would say, you know what, there, here are two or three companies that are executing this playbook really well? Well, the great thing about book was, you know, I, I, I found a superpower of mine many years ago, which I've been told that I'm a pretty good storyteller. So I said, what's the best way to do this? And taking a page out of the Salesforce playbook is Salesforce is masterful at allowing customers to tell the story from the customer's point of view. So what I did in the book was instead of pontificating for 250 pages about what I thought it was all about, was I have 30 case studies. So each path has three case studies, two positive use cases of that particular path, and then sharing the combination and sequence in which those companies did it, and then one cautionary tale of that particular path. So a company who maybe lost their way when they were pursuing it or didn't pursue it soon enough or weren't paying attention that they should have been. So it's a balance of high performers that have used that particular path, highlighting what they did, uh, and then the combination and sequence. And so in each path, three stories. And so the stories are quick bursts of information because I, like many of us, can't pay attention very long. So if I could tell the story quickly, 
then I knew people would stay engaged. And the stories allow me to tell the answer to your question in, in a way that makes it more personable with a cross-section of brands, both globally, sector, industry, size, uh, et cetera. And so that, that really helped bring uh, the book to light. I think that's what people appreciated most, that it didn't feel academic, that you know, it fe- felt as a combination between sort of the practitioner storytell and the, and the academia. I love that. And, and I know there is a, I don't know if you know, Joey Coleman, he wrote a book called Never Lose a Customer. And I recently finished that book and he had kind of similar to yours, almost 20 or 21 different stories that goes. And he had a big chart in it saying that, hey, look, you don't have to read the whole book. Go to page 87 if you're in, if you are a small SMB and trying to figure it out or go to the last page of, or the last story that is all about enterprises. And I think it takes a lot of effort. How long did it take for you to pull all these stories together? Well, what I did first, and to that point that you just made about his book, like I wanted to write a book I would want to read. And so the first thing I did was I read a lot of the top business books uh, that have been out forever. And I, I read them with a new eye. Like, what did I like? What didn't I like? What resonated? What didn't I understand? What was missing? What did they miss on, you know, not doubling down? And a lot of the business books, interestingly enough, spent very little, if any time, on the act of selling. So a great strategy is fantastic, but if you can't sell anything, it doesn't matter. A great product is fantastic. If you can't sell it, it doesn't matter. Like at the end of the day, you know, to sort of steal this quote, right? We do two things. We make stuff, we sell stuff. That's what we do. So I felt like I didn't want to write necessarily a sales book, but I wanted to frame growth as, and this is all about top line, like how does everybody play in the act of growing the business, not just salespeople, right? Yep. So. So that's what I did first was to figure out what kind of book did I want to write. Then how can I tell it in a way? So then I landed on the let me this let me let the stories do it. And so that all that background work probably took more time. But from the very first word to the time I turned in the manuscript was six months. And then from the time the manuscript came back to me and we went through the editing process and publication was another six months, right? So it was about a year, you know, May to August. So, you know, May of uh, 2017 to August of 18. And uh, that, that was really the process. But I think the way I wanted to tell the story and how I wanted to arc each chapter took, took a lot of time and it was very thoughtful and, and very specific. And I, and I made very specific decisions around using those sketch notes in front of it instead of Excel or PowerPoint picking very specific companies so that it would resonate with all kinds of readers, first-time employees, female executives, male executives, Fortune 500, startups, entrepreneurs. I wanted to make it relevant, which my publisher hated because he goes, who are you writing this for? I'm like, everyone. He's like, wrong answer, right? And I'm like, no, stay with me. Trust me. I'm telling you that I know that this will work. So uh, hopefully hopefully, I was able to, to deliver on that. Uh, I, I, you know, haven't written a book before, and I'm I'm finishing off my second book on this whole topic and trend. That we can get into funnels now uh, on account of this marketing and all. I feel it is such a personal experience of writing a book, and nobody would ever know how many how many errors or how many thoughts and how many different ways you have actually thought about it. And everyone has an opinion about it, which is uh, which is what the books are for. But I do feel like it, it was a very cathartic process for me. It was really a humbling process for me to write the second book as well. 
and every time I feel like I want to end up writing more books just because I feel it helps me go deeper into same thoughts that I had, but now that I have to write it, I have to go really deep and think through it. I wonder if there was any moment as you were doing this book, you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even think about that. Oh yeah. I mean, I'd say I wrote a lot more words than made it into the book, right? And so you think that, and so you learn, I think the hardest thing for me to learn was one, to sort of cut in half everything I wrote. That mm. was difficult because I fell in love with everything I wrote. So, right? so there was that. Uh, the second is finding my voice. Um, I, I am not a writer. It's not something that I, you know, aspired to ever do. And Gartner really had to teach me how to write in that way to convey a, a story, you know, or a thought or a position. And I'm a verbal storyteller. So whether it's podcasts or keynotes or in front of customers. And so I had to learn how to get that sort of verbal speaking, storytelling capability on paper. That was really difficult for me. So I had to find a way to make that work in my thinking style and and also stay really authentic to my voice because I do do a lot of speaking. And so if the book had come off being very dry and academic and sort of factual, people would have called me on it and been like, number one, you didn't write it, yeah. right? Or number two, you had someone help you write it because it doesn't sound like you at all. So when someone says to me, I could hear you reading it to me if they weren't listening to the audible, which I'm also reading it to you in the audible version. Oh, wow. You did that. Which, by the way, I had to try out for. They're like, you know, you have to try out for your Audible. I'm like, really? Okay. So anyway, so seven hours and 10 minutes of me. But but ultimately, it had to be authentic to my voice. And so I think that's where I really struggled was how do I do that on, on paper? Oh, oh, my goodness. You did your own Audible. That is fantastic. I, I know people outsource that. I've, I've never done Audible for my, my at least not the first book. I'm not sure about the second book either, but wow, that got to be, I mean, how was that experience? So it was uh, almost 40 hours of recording. Yeah, it was 40 hours of recording. And uh, I, li- I live in Los Angeles. And so I had the benefit of going to the Penguin Random House recording studio, which is probably 15 minutes from my house. Yeah. And you, you walk in and it's like, there's Grammys on the wall. It's like the spoken word of Barack Obama and, you know, all these books. And I'm going, doing here, right? And it's, as you would think, there's like nine, 10, 12 booths, you know, and you behind glass and there's a producer and a whole mixing board. And you're just sitting in this room, soundproof room with, you know, headset on and a microphone in front of you and a, and a, and a, and an easel. And you're just flipping page to page, like literally reading every single word in your book and yeah. you can't miss an uh a the you have to say the plural and literally got to a point where my producer was just hold up her hand and i have to re-say the sentence or you know how do you say someone's last name like we'd have to look it up we'd have to see how they introduce themselves on words are they correct like it was it was really crazy and uh, also audible from a book perspective is very different than this kind of conversation yeah or even stage and so the first day was terrible the first day was terrible, but so I asked for a redo, but yeah. the, the, the second day got better. The third day got better. The fourth day, by the fifth day, I was, I was breezing through it, but it was, you know, it was 40 hours to, to sort of put that book, put that book together. So, I mean, that, that's still like a lot less than what I would expect in terms of the amount of time you put in, because I recently did a LinkedIn course on ABM and I was at the LinkedIn office and they had their whole, the same kind of thing. You, as you mentioned, it was both audio and video. 
and it was 19 videos. And each video was about, I think, two or two and a half minutes uh, on a specific topic. And there were scripts. And I'm not a script guy. So that like threw me off. I felt like I was like, you know, shackled and I, I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. And I had to look at the teleprompter and say it. And that was like a skill that I'm not sure I want to use again in my life uh, in, in a way. So I, I, I totally get it. You said something in this, this process of like the three challenge, the, the three things from a growth perspective, hiring sales, spending more money on marketing and cutting costs has been pretty much the overarching things that you saw companies do. And I couldn't agree more with that. And in, in some ways, I feel like, well, the first two are 100% linked to each other, um, right? Like if the sales numbers are going up, you add more salespeople and, and marketing gets more budget. And if the revenue numbers are going down, the first place to do and look, look at cutting costs is marketing and marketing budget gets cut. And, and I've always talked about that marketing and sales are tied to the head. Talk about funnels for me. What are your thoughts on funnels and how do they, how do they live in your world? So you may know the answer because I prompted you because I tagged you in my LinkedIn post. Yes. But what year was the ADA funnel invented? Okay, we're going to give a silent moment so everyone can go, hmm, don't cheat. Say the year. So whoever's listening, right? Like 1920s, 30s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2005. What is it? So what is it? You know the answer. Oh, you don't know the answer? You, I tagged you in that. Okay, I thought you answered. Okay, so it is, I got it. It, it is the 1890s. It is literally that back? 1890s. Oh, my. So for all of you starting in marketing and seeing the funnel for the first time, we've been doing the funnel for a really long time. So, and how long has solution selling been around? Uh, the same amount of time. So it was NCR back then and doing demos. The yep. funnel was from newspaper advertising and women knocking on doors and selling books door to door back then. So door to door salespeople been around forever. So a lot of the stuff we've been doing has been around a long time. So the question then is, and why I don't really like funnels is because it still thinks that it's big at the top, right? And the days of, we're gonna shove a lot of stuff in the top, all the leads in, and then we may get better at scoring in the middle of the funnel, let's say, which not everyone scores. So at some point, some people are scoring and then it makes it to the bottom where maybe it gets handed over to sales now and sales executes. I feel like it would be so much better if the funnel was flipped. Flip, yeah, my, funnel. Awesome. flip my funnel, right? Funnel was flipped and it was less going in the top because you're smarter about what you're doing from a marketing perspective, right? You well, who are your target customers? Where do they go? Where can you find them? Where have the customers who you have now? Where do they come from? What's the propensity to buy and the lifetime value? And forget the customers that aren't profitable for you. Don't go fishing there anymore and get smarter about what you're putting in. Because to one of the things you just said a moment ago about hiring more salespeople, we have such inefficiency in the sales force, two words in that case, right? And so the two stats I always bring up is more than 50% of salespeople will miss quota. And that's from, C that's from CSO uh, uh, Insights, which is now part of, part of Miller-Hyman. And then the second one is that 60% of a salesperson's time is spent on non-selling activities. So if you look at those two stats alone, do we really need to hire more salespeople or should we just make the salespeople we have more efficient and effective? And part of the thing they're struggling with, and I'm making a, you know, a very broad assumption here, is the fact that there may be working leads that are, should have never come across their desk. 
And that's why I don't like the funnel being large at the top. And because we have all this inefficiency, instead of just getting smarter at the top of the funnel, you know, you can be smarter at the bottom of the funnel and maybe improve some of that. I, the other reason, the, right. Yeah. And then the, uh, the other reason that I don't uh, like it is because I don't think customers wake up in the morning and say, oh, my God, I'm going from stage two to stage three in the sales process. I don't know. Call me crazy. Yeah. But our sales process is not the same. Our sales process is not the same as the buyer's journey. Those are two very different things. So the buyer may be 60% through the buyer journey, you know, according to CEB and many, many others. But that doesn't mean that then they're at stage three, four, or five in our sales process. And the disconnection between those two is because uh, sales and marketing's metrics are forcing them to really use the funnel as a way of saying, oh, I am actually producing. I need more marketing money. Look at all the leads I'm bringing in. Well, sales says, yeah, but the leads are crappy. And then the battle between sales and marketing begins. The third reason I don't like the funnel is because it does not include and rarely includes customer service as a source for that funnel. So the battle between sales and marketing is not so interesting to me. It's, it's rather boring. We've been talking about it for a long time since I've been in the industry. I've been selling for 27 years. So for a long time, this battle has been happening. But now pulling in customer service into this whole, well, what's the pipeline and forecast for the customer service organization? And what's their funnel look like? And is marketing enabling customer service the same way they enable sales? And it's really the three of those groups, customer-facing groups together, that are the sort of trifecta of growth for me. So I think the funnel misses customer service. I think it should not be you know, heavy at the top because then it's being not taking advantage of all the intelligence and AI and machine, machine learning and predictive capabilities we have now with CRM and, and other tools. And then the third is because we're not focusing on the inefficiencies on both the sales and marketing side. I love it. How have we not had you on the podcast before? That is 100% on me in terms of scheduling because like, I don't have, I, all I have to say is amen, amen, and amen to the, the last part because so true, so true. The, the part that we at Terminus started to really jump into, Tiffany, has been this idea of one team because we felt like in, in some ways, I also felt like calling it ABM was, is also a disservice because it kind of put more focus on account-based marketing and marketers and people started to say, well, it's a marketer's job. And well, no, it is, it is a one team kind of mentality. And the go-to-market team is your marketing sales and customer success. Uh, but it is so hard for most companies to come around. And then the companies that do come around, they're all coming with like, like you know, bruises all over the place. And they're looking at customer successes like, well, wait a minute, we should have tried to get the right customers to begin with, although we have now this leaky bucket problem. So this is a cyclical issue that has caused more companies to put again more money in hiring more sales, trying to get a top run, and it's just ongoing thing. What advice do you have for somebody listening to this who's a sales leader right now? Let's just talk directly to the sales leaders, right? They are probably running and getting their quota numbers and all that stuff for the year. They're probably the first thing that their CFO and CEO is saying that you need to hire more salespeople because we need to admit this. And this is just a standard conversation happened today in every organization. How should a CRO or a chief sales officer go back to their CEO and CFO and talk about this in a more intelligent way? Yeah, so I started talking about this a number of years ago when I was in my previous role at Gartner. I actually coined the term the seller's dilemma. 
And I played against Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. But for a sales leader, the challenge they have is how do I change the tire on the car, tires on the car when it's going around the track at 100 miles an hour, which is that is my pipeline. That is my forecast. That is I have to hit my numbers today. While at the same time, they take a beat, step back and say, hold on. 53% of my sellers aren't hitting quotas. 64% of their time is spent on non-selling. We have this complete disconnection between the leads that are coming and what we're working on and everything we were just talking about. They're not spending any time in trying to transform the business because they're, they're held to such a standard for uh, actually hitting numbers. And so that's the dilemma. How do I hit numbers while at the same time I transform? So the question to go back would be, look, I've done some research, you know, I'm the CRO or head of sales. I've done some research and actually go forward with the stats from their company. Mm. Look, X percentage of our sellers are not hitting quota. Y percent of their time is spent on non-selling activities. We have deployed, you know, XYZ CRM system, hopefully it's Salesforce, right? When I started doing marketing, I, I'm going to date myself here, but I was a Loquas beta client in 2001. Okay. All right. And I was social selling and selling via chat and recurring revenue. I worked for the largest web hosting company in the US. We were four times the size of Rackspace. It's now web.com on the shared side. It's peer one on the dedicated side. And a lot of our sort of intellectual property got scooped up by uh, GoDaddy. But when I was doing that, right, there was maybe, and I was constant contacts uh, beta clients as well. Uh, so when I was doing that, there was maybe 10 MarTech companies. Yeah. Scott now says there's 7,500. So there's no shortage of tools, people. Like we don't have a technology problem. We have a people process problem. And so being able to uncover in your own organization where you actually have opportunity for improvement and for optimization is what I would present to the leaders up front, where it isn't just spend more money so I can make more money. It's like, hold on. I don't actually need 10 more salespeople. I just need, if I could get the middle performers of our sales organization to improve performance by two to 5%. Trust me, Mr. Sales Leader, who's listening to this, you will be a hero. Yeah. But you don't take the time to coach, to mentor, to understand where they're spending their time. Your next pipeline review meeting should never be about the deals in the pipeline because if you're using CRM, you know the information. Why are you asking it? Yeah. Like focus in on, hey, look, I see that you're spending X amount of time doing these things. Do you know we can automate it or this person can help you? And I need you to try to spend more time selling, more time with customers. And that doesn't mean FaceTime because then there's windshield time. We now could do video selling, which we couldn't do back then, right? You now have, so account-based marketing to me is, you know, an interesting conversation. You know, my old team, Todd Berkowitz at, at, uh, at Gartner, right, has been covering ABM. He's sort of the lead guy on it. And we've always debated this conversation of, who owns ABM? Is it marketing? Is it sales? And going back to this bruises and disconnection, I think the thing that's missing in this whole conversation is the metrics are disconnected, so the teams are disconnected. And so ABM puts a metric on account-based marketing. Trust me when I tell you there's a whole chapter in Growth IQ on customer-based penetration that digs into ABM. Then there's a whole chapter on optimizing sales, which digs into this conversation. Those two right there sort of talk about this topic, but the metric is sales. How much did you sell marketing? I'm oversimplifying marketing. Yep. How many leads did you deliver and customer service? How quickly did you get the customer off the phone? Right? 
And if they're not sharing a metric, what happens? They're all running in their own direction, right? Yeah. Versus if marketing and sales shared a metric, and I'm not saying it's just quota, right? There has to be something. And then customer service that maybe it's net promoter score, maybe it's CSAT, maybe it's churn, maybe it's conversion rates, maybe it's upsell, cross-sell if you have multiple products. Like it has to be something that everyone shares. And then you can start to have these conversations as a sales leader to go to leadership and say, look, the steady state business, I just, I have to manage. But here's two or three areas I think we can improve without spending more money. I think they'd be more open to it. I, that, that's a fantastic, actionable, actionable response to that. So, so here, here are a couple of big ideas. I, I took a whole bunch of notes. Oh, all right. Tiffany, so I think I'm going to add a bunch more in your show notes, but I'm going to share a couple of big ideas for people to remember and not forget. And then love for you to share a challenge with every leader listening to this and to say, well, how, how can they lead better in these situations? Because it is, it is a challenge for them. There's a uh, old way of doing things and until it's been challenged and if it's not challenged the right way they're out of the door so they're kind of as you said they're changing the wheel as they're driving fast and, and this, this is a real challenge both for a cmo as well as a cro in most companies so a couple of big ideas for me from all of this number one including myself i need to go back because it's still on my shelf i need to go back and reread the the read the 30 different case studies because i didn't realize it had 30 different case studies so 100% transparent. I haven't done that. So my action on them to do it. So that's, that's fantastic that you had it there. Number two, I feel like this is a challenge in every single organization of hire more sales or spend more on marketing or cut cost. And there's a better way to do it. So, so let's go challenge that. And then the three big things that you talked about, like, wait a minute, I never connected those, those dots. Number one, the sales process and the buyer journey are two different things. Totally. It's not the same thing. No. And, oh my gosh, I hope this kind of gets people thinking is like, yes, my funnel, no matter how down, upside down, whatever it is, it's the sales process internal is very different than how people buy today. So don't try to. Well, yeah, and they also don't, you know, the other thing about the funnel is it just doesn't magically flow from one <laughs> step to the yeah. next in this beautiful, you know, easy Nurture program moving. Like it never goes backwards. Yeah. Right. So that's the other thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Keep I going. Keep going. Oh, I love that because it, it is so crazy to think that, no, this is how it needs to flow because I, this is how I'm tracking it. And this is easy for me. Right. The customer better do it. It's crazy. Um, and then you talked about this idea that, oh my goodness, this is big, that we don't have a technology problem. There's enough. There's 7,500, I think about 8,000, especially just smart tech space that enough technologies we have a people process problem yeah. so let's focus on that i think that's a big idea too there are a few more that i'm going to add in the show notes but what is the one challenge stephanie that you want to share with the leaders to just lead better knowing all these challenges they have so i can tell you that i grew up selling i mean that's sort of what i did and i had to learn how to be a marketer because of that sort of friction between sales and marketing i kind of had was like whatever right but then i had to manage marketing and i was like uh oh like yeah. I have to change my attitude, right? And then when I started doing that, I really saw it from a different perspective. Then at that time that I was working for Interland, which is now web.com, I then took over customer service, which I had never had as well. And I was given a fantastic piece of advice that I needed to go sit in on customer service calls 
you know, once a month. And I sort of doubled down and I said, I'm going to go listen for a half an hour every day, because if I'm going to manage the team, I need to understand like what kind of calls they're getting. And this is long before we had predictive and we had analytics and, you know, we were using Plesk as our, which then became, was purchased by Parallels, which we were also their beta client. I'm really dating myself. So ultimately uh, we were pushing the envelope on trying to use all these new tools, um, self-service tools, and it was websites and emails. So, you know, it could take down a small business, but this is, you know, 2000 people didn't have everything we have today. But when I sat in on there with, one example I'm going to give you is we would get this spike in churn at the end of every month. Mm. And I, I would not have realized what it was, except I sat in on the calls towards the end of the month. And I heard that everyone was calling because their service was down because their credit card expired. Mm. Okay. And so we weren't doing a pull of whose credit cards are going to expire 90 days from now. And let's do a proactive communication out to them to say, hey, your credit card's going to expire. We don't want to have you know, interruption in your service, both your website, your e-commerce site and your email. So can you update your credit card? Here's the link, go to the portal and update the credit card. And all of a sudden it bounced back up where we didn't have that flurry of calls at the end of the month. The churn numbers weren't, you know, lumpy. We weren't doing all these win back campaigns. Like we didn't need to win people back. We just needed to get the new credit card. Never would have gotten there had I not listened in on the call. Wow. So, so I would say to you that, and, and part of it was probably my n- naiveness of never running customer service, right? Someone else may go, well, obviously, but I had not done it before. And so I went in and, and got, uh, you know, the executive team to say, we're going to re- create this report. And once again, this is, we were having to create a lot of stuff on our own, but I would say as a sales leader, you have to learn how to have empathy for the groups around you that also touch clients and have an impact really on your ability to sell. If your brand doesn't have a positive reputation outside of your four walls, it doesn't matter how well your sales team can actually do, it's doing a disservice. So understanding that if your salespeople are selling deals, they shouldn't sell to a customer who's ultimately gonna churn, you've created animosity up front and churn out the other side. Same from a marketing perspective. I would say marketers listening in to go on a sales call. And I don't mean going and saying I'm a marketer. I mean going and saying I'm a new hire salesperson. Because what changes there is you get to hear how in the real world environment of a seller trying to talk to a customer, challenge or sell them, whatever you want to spin sell them, whatever you want to call it, that they don't want to see the PowerPoint or they don't want to read the case studies and you're working really hard on something customers don't even value in their, in their buyer journey, not in our sales process. And the same thing. So I'd say as a sales leader, find a common ground with your marketing counterparts. Spend time with customer service because, you know, it's my belief that the customer service, customer success, whatever you'd like to call it, teams are actually going to be generating a tremendous amount of quotes that hit your quota. Uh, And so you need to make sure you're aligned to them. And from a marketer's perspective, you need to enable customer service the same way you do sales. And then coming up with a shared metric, inviting each other to team meetings, letting them give ideas and bubble and surface them, swap roles for a day. I mean, anything you can do to get people to start to understand what it really means, you know, that would be my high level. But from a personal standpoint, I'd say as an executive, as a sales leader, you have to carve at least 10 to 15% of your day and your week to thinking through this seller's dilemma. 
thinking through what's next and how do you transform while at the same time you're managing your business. And so getting more efficient on managing your business will allow you to spend time on some of these topics we've been talking about. I love that. These are super actionable, Tiffany. I, I love that, especially the, the swapping of roles. Even I think people can do that today and that will create so much awareness and understanding of just being another person's shoes. Love that, that we got to do this. I'm so glad. I'm going to go go back and read the book that's sitting on my shelf and go through those 30 case studies. Oh gosh, why did I do that so far? Uh, hopefully yeah, and, I would, and I would tell you, so, so you like the fact that, you know, the, the, that, that other book had sort of where to go. Yeah. So here's the book. Yep. Here's the book. And I would tell you customer-based penetration, it's much less expensive to go after an existing customer than net new. They're much more likely to buy from you, try new products. They're much more loyal. They'll spend more money. And so understanding who your customers are has ever, not, it's not just about ABM. It's about, well, then who else are you going to go and get? Who's most profitable? What salespeople under, you know, there's so much you can unpack once you understand that voice of the customer. So that's the first one. And the second one would be that optimized sales, right? Because we're so inefficient on a sales rep's time yeah. and on quota attainment. And once again, and you caught this, that, that it isn't about technology, that, that this is the way we've done it. Since the late 1890s, I might add, you know, it, we need to think differently because the customers, we all know as consumers, we're not the same we used to be. So how can we expect our customers to be the same? Because they're consumers as well. So that's, that's what I would leave us everybody with. Thousand percent. Tiffany, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, thanks for having me. This was great. I could talk about this stuff all day long. And I can hear it because this is, this is good stuff. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.